Before we get started, I want to let you know that this podcast will cover sensitive details about sexual abuse and may be disturbing to some listeners. It was a Saturday evening when Father Mike, a priest I'd known my whole life, stood in front of our church and made a shocking confession. Fourteen years ago, he said, I transgressed the boundaries of a teenage boy. I was reminded of this recently when my mom emailed me a list. A list of all the priests in our area who'd been accused of sexually abusing children. I opened the attachment and scrolled down the grid of faces to the one I knew I'd recognize. I will go in a Catholic church only for weddings and funerals. I still have my faith in God. I still have my faith in Jesus Christ. I don't have any faith whatsoever in the institution or church. I do indeed consider myself Catholic. And at the same time, I'm disgusted and frustrated. He molested me, he molested my siblings, and I haven't seen him in 30 years. And so I followed him upstairs to the rectory where he lived, and he closed the door behind me, and my life took a different turn. In the seminary, the attitude was very much, these are some priests from the 50s and 70s that messed up, but it's not really a risk anymore. I think the challenge for Catholics is how do we still be part of, should we still be part of, should we still love this community despite its flaws? From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. I grew up Catholic, and my faith has always been a big part of my life, and it's been the backbone of my career. I majored in religious studies in college, went to divinity school, taught theology to high schoolers, and have always been really involved in different Catholic ministries. But I've been shaken by this crisis in my community. And so in this episode, I'm starting with a question many Catholics are asking. Should I stay or should I go? And if I stay, what next? There's a lot to learn about this crisis. So I want to give you a quick overview of the facts up until this point. And don't worry, we're going to go a lot deeper on all this stuff in future episodes. Catholic officials made another effort today to confront a scandal that has shamed and dishonored the church. In January 2002, the Boston Globe spotlight team broke the story of a priest, Father Gagan, who had abused more than 130 children. And yet another apology from Boston's pulpit for failing to protect children from a pedophile priest. It wasn't just him. The Globe found more than 250 credibly accused priests in Boston alone. Worse, church leaders had covered for these men, over and over. They paid secret settlements to victims and transferred the priests to other churches. 
This wasn't the first time abuse had been exposed. The National Catholic Reporter investigated this in the mid-'80s, but Spotlight's reporting made national headlines. And it made it clear that the problem was systemic, not just a few bad apples. Fast forward 16 years to this past summer, when Pennsylvania's attorney general released a long-awaited grand jury report. The report traced child sexual abuse in six of Pennsylvania's eight dioceses. A little Catholic 101. A diocese is kind of like a county of churches. Each individual church is called a parish. No one had done an investigation on this scale before. And its findings were pretty in line with spotlights and with smaller grand jury reports from other states. After Spotlight, some people thought there must be something in the water in Boston that made it extra susceptible to clergy abuse. But it's clear now that Boston was no different from anywhere else. The Pennsylvania grand jury report also went into great detail when describing the abuse. I'm going to play a clip from the press conference, and it's really hard to listen to. So if that's something you don't want to hear, skip ahead about a minute. Father William Presley gave a boy sedatives to relax him before his abuse, then told him it was okay because he was a priest. Father Edmund Paraco told altar boys not to wear any clothing underneath their cassocks because God didn't want clothes on their skin as they served mass. Father Ed Graff told a seventh grader he abused that what they were doing was okay because the priest was an instrument of God. In their records, the diocese referred to these incidents as inappropriate conduct or boundary issues. They never called it rape or assault. Now, the cases in the grand jury report aren't new. Most of them are from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. It's really hard to measure current rates of abuse because victims don't usually come forward until years later. But reports like this indicate that rates of abuse in the church have gone down since 2002. And this is probably because of something called the Dallas Charter. A day of pain and sympathy at the Catholic Bishops' Conference in Dallas. Victims of priest sexual abuse were invited to talk at the meeting. The Catholic Church in the United States is in a very grave crisis, perhaps the gravest we have faced. Now, this is a much harder line than they had taken earlier in their uh, first draft proposal on this issue. The Dallas Charter was the church's response to the spotlight revelations. It was a set of guidelines written by the U.S. Bishops' Conference that included tougher psychological screenings for priests, background checks, mandated reporting, and this is the really important thing, a zero-tolerance policy. Zero tolerance means that a priest who has been found responsible for any kind of sexual abuse of a minor must be removed from ministry without exception. Data suggests that because of the Dallas Charter, the church is a much safer place these days. But that doesn't make the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report any less horrifying. In fact, reading it, the crisis felt more real to me than it ever had. I'm older for one. But I think the real reason is that, for the first time, I heard victims talking about what happened to them. This is from a video the grand jury shared on their website. My name is Robert Corby, and I'm 83 years old. 
Sean Doherty, 48 years old. Carolyn Fortney, 37. I was groomed starting young. The day I met him, I was, I was around 18 months old. They targeted me because I was fatherless. Who would have believed me, a priest in 1948 or 47 would abuse you? do that? Never heard of such a thing because they covered it up. It doesn't ever go away. It, it has an effect on you for the rest of your life. It'll just be refreshing to not have to, I guess, pretend like I'm someone else all the time. very lonely, especially when it's your word against Scott. There was another big story that surfaced around the same time as the grand jury report. Cardinal Theodore McCarrick, one of the highest-ranking church officials in the U.S., was found credibly accused of sexually abusing both children and adult seminarians. Seminarians are like priests in training. McCarrick resigned, but this whole ordeal pointed out a glaring flaw in the Dallas Charter. Bishops had gotten themselves off the hook. All the guidelines in the Charter only applied to priests. Plus, bishops weren't held accountable for their part in the cover-up. The hush money, the transfers, there were no consequences for any of it. Between the McCarrick scandal and the grand jury report, it's clear to me that the church needs a complete reckoning. And many people have already given up hope. I'm not rejecting anything I ever believed. I just can't do it. I spoke with Melinda Henneberger, a lifelong Catholic and journalist who covered the Vatican for The New York Times. Last November, she wrote a piece for USA Today explaining her decision to leave the church. And it wasn't long before messages started pouring in. So many heartbreaking stories of abuse victims, lots of people in parish work, priests who are thinking of leaving for the same reason. One priest who was himself an abuse victim of other priests. This wasn't the first time Melinda struggled with being a part of the church. There were other... Difficult moments, especially when I was covering the sex scandal in the church, clerical scandals in 0203 when I was covering the Vatican. That was extremely difficult for me as a Catholic, not so much as a journalist. You know, there's a very old saying, go to Rome and lose your faith. And I didn't lose my faith, but it was very unsettling to see the reaction in Rome at that time. The first reaction was, this is an invention of the American media. And more than one cardinal made it plain that they meant the Jewish American media, or as they said, you know, our enemies, the enemies of Holy Mother Church. And that was a very ugly thing. Because of all this, Melinda decided she needed a break and didn't go to Mass for about a year. And when she returned, her parish priest got it. 
the priest I had known for many years said, oh, we haven't seen you around here in a while. And he was kind of laughing. And I said, yes, I needed to take a break after everything I saw and, and experienced in Rome. And he said, you know, if I weren't in this job, I might have had to take a break, too. I totally understand. Hmm. And so... I guess what I thought then was they have put these new protections in place in Dallas. They are moving forward with reform. There's no more hiding. There's no more covering up. And I love my own worship community. So I'm going to go forward maybe not in the same way as before because That really was a difficult experience, but I never thought of leaving. As with any meaningful relationship, leaving a faith community is hard. Which is why I was curious to know what Melinda liked about being Catholic in the first place. Everything. I'm not kidding when I say that. I mean, this scandal was so hurtful because to me, the church is so beautiful. I love the rituals, I love the sacraments, I love the, you know, much of the history, not all of it. The saints, the whole experience, the art. I loved my Catholic life growing up. It was very much a shelter and a storm for me. I felt um, my mom had a lot of health problems when I was growing up and I felt that I could go in church and feel really supported. I know that's why I stayed so long, because I personally had such a good experience in it, and it made it worse for me that something so beautiful had been made so ugly by the consistently wrong actions of the people who were supposed to be in charge. It sounds like you were really disillusioned with some of the hierarchy in Rome and their response to the sexual abuse crisis, but that your more immediate community was hearing you and was offering a very pastoral response, but that you were also very hopeful about the changes that the Dallas Charter might bring. Yes. So when did all of that change for you? When did you decide that you could no longer abide being Catholic? Well, I don't even know if I would put it that way. I kind of think about it like when you get a divorce. I mean, I've never been a divorced person, but I think that there just comes a day when you realize that it's not a decision anymore because it's a break that's already happened. It's admitting to a reality that already exists. It's not that I don't believe in anything I believed a year ago or the year before that. I do but I just can't bear it anymore. And then there was the meeting in Baltimore. Dear brothers, I need to open our time together with an important announcement. There was this meeting in Baltimore where, you know, we've been promised and promised and promised, so just hold on till November. We're really gonna get a handle on it. We're really gonna move forward with some reforms. Although I am disappointed that we will not be taking these actions tomorrow. So this meeting in Baltimore, it's an annual meeting of U.S. bishops. And this year, number one on the agenda was voting on concrete measures for bishops to hold themselves accountable. But that's not what happened. At the last minute, the bishops received a letter from Rome telling them to postpone the vote to February. 
We will not be voting on the two action items in our documentation regarding the abuse crisis, that is, the standards of accountability for bishops and the special commission for receiving complaints against bishops. I won't exactly be amazed if in February it will be some other kick-the-can maneuver. And I just personally feel like, at what point do you start to say, you know, since I so strongly identified as a Catholic, then I'm signing off on this in some way. If I stay in, it means something. A lot of Catholics right now are saying, you know, my Catholic faith really is grounded in Jesus and the Gospels. And being Catholic is not necessarily about a very flawed human institution. What do you say in response to that? Of course, but I feel that the failings of the human institution was in between me and Christ. I feel like it was a real obstacle to my faith. I don't want to go to Mass and think about how mad I am at the bishops. If I identify with it, to me, at a certain point when it's not changing, not changing, not changing, when does it cross into the line where I'm enabling this? It's like a politician saying, I approve this message. Yeah, it sounds like you are responding with a very personal sense of moral integrity. You know, that like to practice integrity to your faith and to honoring human dignity, right, which is cornerstone to the Catholic faith, that you can no longer be complicit. That's exactly it. That is exactly it. I can no longer be complicit. How do you feel towards those of us Catholics who have remained in the church and who are trying to pave a way forward to bring about healing and reform? Very warmly, fondly, and gratefully, because... I was there for many years myself. I mean, I didn't just come to this one day. For many years, I told myself, stay and fight, stay and fight. It's my church, too. It's our church. We are the church. I know all those things. Until the moment I couldn't feel that way anymore. So, of course, I'm grateful that people are fighting for change. I think that's very necessary, even though the moment came, obviously, when I couldn't be part of it anymore. Do you ever imagine yourself coming back and what would have to change in order for you to consider it? I kind of can't think like that right now because I'm just getting used to this kind of new reality and figuring out where I go from here. That said, of course, I hope that the bishops find a solution or that a solution is imposed on them by the people of God. (laughs) I mean, of course, I'm rooting for the church I was part of for all my life. And when someone says something uh, like, oh, thank God, it's sort of like, again, the divorce metaphor. When someone says, oh, I never saw why you were married to that guy. You don't like that, right? Like, I don't really want to hear I was stupid all my life or that I can't relate to that. I still do feel warmly for all the beyond warmly that doesn't even begin to touch it for everyone I love who's in the church and everything I love about the church. I really admire Melinda's integrity and many people throughout history have made the same choice she did. In fact, for centuries, the church has been rocked by scandal and self-made tragedy. But I wanted to know if it 
also had a history of reform. So I called up an expert. So my name is Brian Flanagan. I'm a professor of theology at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. Brian isn't just any theologian. He's an ecclesiologist. Yeah, so ecclesiology is the sub-area of theology that studies what the church is, what it could be, what it should be, all of those things. You've written a book on sin and sanctity in the church, and you've said that one of the contributing factors to the sexual abuse crisis is an inadequate theology of ecclesial sinfulness. What do you mean by that? So, first of all, that isn't the only factor in the abuse crisis, so I don't want to claim that much for my little take on it. But one of the contributing factors, I think, to the way that abuse happened especially at the peaks of abuse of minors in the 1950s, 60s, early 70s, as well as the attempts to keep covering it up that have continued, has been a, a false theology that saying the church is holy means saying the church is perfect. And so I saw lots of people for whom the desire to protect the church from scandal or to protect the church from losing that facade of perfection was one of the reasons to say, we can't let this out, we can't admit wrongdoing, we can't talk about ecclesial sin. Was there a time in history when we had a more robust theology of ecclesial sinfulness, or just a sense of how flawed and broken the church was? One of my favorite stories is the folk tradition. When a cardinal is buried in a cathedral, it's often traditional to take his big red hat, his galero, and hoist it up to the rafters of the church. And the folk legend was that it was only when the rope and the hat finally rotted enough that it fell to the ground that the cardinal's soul had gotten out of purgatory. <laughs> so a long time. So a long time. So people were aware of the fallibility of their leaders. I knew my church was flawed. Or at least I knew parts of the church were flawed. But those parts felt distant from my Catholic community. My community taught me that being Catholic meant getting up at 5 a.m. on Saturday mornings to make breakfast for the homeless. My faith compelled me to visit the incarcerated, tutor underserved kids, and help out in Sunday school. I learned to psychologically distance myself from the hierarchy and the sexism and the abuse by insisting that the real church was people like my friends, living out their faith. But there's no such thing as a perfect church. The church that enabled and covered up the abuse of thousands of children is the same church that taught me to honor the dignity in everyone. And if I'm going to claim belonging to part of it, I need to claim belonging to all of it. But then what? How do I help make it into the church it claims to be? I asked Brian what he thought. Brian, is there a crisis like this one in the church's history that we can learn from now? There's never been a crisis quite like this one, in the sense that it's hit home in so many ways, and it's been primarily about individual conduct more than big theological doctrines. But the closest analogy, I think, would be the calls for reform in the 13th century, which seems like a long way away. But in the 12th and 13th century in Europe, we see a lot of what we might call corruption. They said it was a need for reform. A lot of both clergy and monasteries, religious houses, Benedictine houses, that popular people perceived had gotten too caught up in wealth, too caught up in power, too distant from the way of life of Jesus, the way of life of the apostles. So we start seeing 
in Western Europe and especially in places like Italy and Spain, movements to be more apostolic was the language they used or to be more evangelical. And, and that would be like the apostles or... To be like the apostles, yeah. And to live lives of greater poverty, to live lives of more active preaching and teaching of the gospel rather than sitting in place, to live lives that reflected Jesus' life and the apostles' life as closely as possible. And the Franciscan and the Dominican movements, these begging orders, mendicant meaning begging orders, because of their extreme poverty, start in the 1200s and explode. So the Franciscans go from Francis starting with just a few of his friends to having 30,000, 40,000 people who are Franciscan friars within only about 50, 60 years. So one lesson was that they didn't spend lots of time trying to directly confront the institution as much as they spent time trying to live creatively in and through the institution. So they found cracks in the ways that an older form of doing church that wasn't working anymore, there were cracks in that wall, and they found ways to live in those cracks and live in those places and grow into something new. The second thing is that it was deeply dependent on authenticity. The friars were believed because they were living what they believed. Living in the cracks is exactly what I'm trying to do. There have always been people who felt that in order to be authentic to themselves and to their experience of faith, they had to leave the church. It's what happened in the Protestant Reformation. And it's what Melinda's going through right now. And there have always been people who felt an equally authentic need to stay and work within the church. I think I'm one of those people. I can't imagine leaving. The church has been my home for as long as I can remember. And I want to be a part of fixing it. After the Pennsylvania grand jury report was released, Pope Francis responded with a letter. He wrote that no effort must be spared to create a culture able to prevent such situations from happening. No effort spared. I took those words to heart. And even more than effort, I wanted real, concrete changes. But I wasn't sure what those changes looked like. So I started writing down everything I knew and everything I didn't know about the crisis. I realized I had a million questions. And with the help of journalists, theologians, abuse survivors, activists, priests, and fellow Catholics, I'm trying to get answers. Because you can't fix something until you understand how it's broken. On Deliver Us, we're asking, does sexual abuse happen more in the Catholic Church than in other places? And what in Catholic culture might be contributing to this? Clerical abuse occurs in other religious traditions. But it is more serious in the Catholic Church because we are taught the priest represents Christ. We'll talk to the Spotlight reporters who broke the story and find out exactly how the cover-up functioned. A lot of these bishops just really didn't care, and we're just concerned about protecting the reputation of the church or the reputation of themselves. We'll look into what the church did to make things better and what it failed to do. Why are you waiting for them to tell you what you can do under canon law about making bishops accountable when you can be accountable yourselves? We'll listen to survivors and bring their stories to the center of the conversation. And I spent the next 
decades puzzling it out and trying to make sense of it. And I will do everything in my power to figure out what ordinary Catholics like me can do to help. I wish there was a silver bullet cure, one that would stop abuse in its tracks forever. But it's more complicated than that. So no, I can't offer an easy solution. What I can offer is a better understanding of what we're up against and a few ideas of what might help. It's not everything, but it's a first step. And that gives me hope. Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundrup. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Kieran Freeman and Mary Beth Thoreau. Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. This episode was written by me and Sarah Esikoff. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit RAIN.org. That's www.rainn.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC. That's usccb.org forward slash VAC.